All right, we'll, we'll, we'll get started here. Um, today is the commemoration of the prophet Jonah. Um, yesterday was uh, St. Matthew, but today is uh, Jonah. And um, I'll read a little bit about Jonah. You'll probably know something about him, right? But from the Treasury of Daily Prayer, uh, the writing is uh, a singular prophet among, among the many in the Old Testament. Jonah, the son of, of Amittai, was born about an hour's walk from the town of Nazareth. The focus of his prophetic ministry was, to call, was the call to preach at Nineveh, the capital of pagan Assyria. His reluctance to respond and God's insistence that his call be heeded is the story of the book that bears Jonah's name. Although the swallowing and disgorging of Jonah by the great fish is the most, is the most remembered detail of his life, it is addressed in only three verses of the book. Throughout the book, the important theme is how God deals compassionately with sinners. Jonah's three days sojourn in the belly of the fish is mentioned by Jesus as a sign of his own death, burial, and resurrection. So, that in mind. So, with that, we pray. Um, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, through the prophet Jonah, you continued the prophetic pattern of teaching your people the true faith and demonstrating through, through miracles your presence in creation to heal it of its brokenness. Grant that your church may see in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the final end times prophet, whose teaching and miracles continue in your church through the healing medicine of the gospel and the sacraments. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so we are in Hebrews, <clears throat> excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12, right? We were last week going through uh, verse 3 through 17, right? And uh, let me get out my notes from here. So what is covered in chapter 12, verses 3 through 17? What sort of things did we talk about last week for the sake of Vanita, who sadly couldn't join us? Oh, yeah. yeah, for her sake, what did, we, what did we go through last week? Discipline. Discipline, yeah. Yeah, discipline was a big part of it. What about discipline? Perseverance. Okay, perseverance. Yeah, discipline. 
perseverance, what sort of, what was said about discipline? It's for your own good. Yeah, that's right, it's for your own good. Um, I believe that um, Dr. Kleinig reads discipline as something a little different, and I'm not sure exactly why. He says that it's more, uh, what is it? Well, I say that, and now, well, what does he say? I think, I think he said, I think he calls it instruction. You know, that he, he likens discipline to instruction. Yeah. So when you think, yeah, endure for the sake of instruction. Is that, is that what it says in the... How about this? Let's read uh, Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 17. I'll get that for you all. Um, it says, Consider him who endured from s s sinners such hostility against himself, that is Christ, right? That's who it was referencing in the previous verses. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of sh shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he, whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the, the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it Many become defiled, that no one is, is sexually 
immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So, we see a lot here as far as discipline, um, instruction, um, how discipline and the moment seems painful, right? Um, How is that disheartening? When you get all through reading that, and you're being disciplined and all of that, and you say, well, chuck it, kid, you lost. No, how did you lose? Well, you just read there. Like Esau? We're going to get to that, because we didn't get to it last week very much. So we'll get to it. With Esau, we're going to see here. So, so, okay, last week, just as a quick recap, we talked about how he's exhorting them as sons, um, that all people who have been baptized and believe in Christ as their Savior are considered sons of God. They are the firstborn heirs along with Christ. Um, and so what happens is, uh, let me see here, there's, there's this exhortation that there is discipline. And I, I, I liken it to my sermon on, on um, Galatians 5, where, you know, there's the desires of the flesh, but the desires of the spirit are contrary to the flesh, so that you would not do what the flesh desires, right? Um, that the spirit aids you in your temptation. It, the, he, the spirit, he is the one who tells you this is not right, you know. Keep this from turning you astray, right? And I, and I, I love the uh, bit of advice, I think it was, it's attributed to Jerome, um, one of the church fathers. Uh, he told, told a young disciple who was very worried about all the thoughts he was having. He said, my thoughts are just so filled with all kinds of horrible things. What do I do? And Jerome gave him the bit of advice. He said, well, you can't keep birds from flying uh, um, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting uh, from nesting in your hair, right? So these thoughts to sin that will pull us away will come and go, but the Spirit aids us by being able to say, no, I'm not going to engage in that. I can't, because I am a child of God. So there's discipline that goes along with being a Christian. And then he is using this example of Esau at the end to give us a grave warning. Um, because with Esau, well, first of all, let's see what he talks about before he gets to him. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your your." weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Right, and we'll stop there for a second. So, what he's talking about 
is very important for us to keep in mind nowadays because you get a lot of people, especially in America and the American form of Christianity, where everyone, or at least a good majority of people, believe that the Christian faith, it's very personal. It's a personal thing. I don't really want to talk about it, but it's just between me and God. It's just me and God, right? That's, that's, that's a big emphasis. But what he's talking about here is not the individual struggle of each person by themselves. He's talking about the struggle of each person with the other people in the church, in the body of Christ. He's telling them, you know, watch out for each other, right? He's saying, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That is, look out for each other. If someone is stumbling, make sure that they get help, right? You can't just say, oh, bless their heart. Hope they do well. See you next Sunday, right? But go to them. Make sure they're not struggling by themselves. We're stronger together in this way. And in fact, because he's talking, if you look a little bit before, um, in chapter 12, the first two verses, he talks about running a race, right? And before that, he talked about the great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on, right? Pointing to Jesus. And it's a race to the end that is in Christ, right? That we are called to run this race. And it's hard. And it's hard by ourselves. We're not supposed to run by ourselves. We're supposed to run with everybody else. We're stronger together than we are by ourselves. And that's what he's talking about. Um, and when he talks about um, these things, you know, um, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become Defiled, And what he is talking about here is not entirely clear. Uh, what verse is that? That's uh, verse 13, right? Am I right? No, 15. My bad. Verse 15. Um, so sometimes this discipline can be too much for people, Right? The discipline of the Lord that is supposed to strengthen us, right? That is supposed to not discourage us, but cause us to seek to rely more and more on God and His strength. Sometimes people can be disheartened and they can become exhausted and they f fall behind, right? If you think of a race, you're running as a group, someone falls behind. And um, he is encouraging the congregation to watch out so that none of its members miss out on the grace of God by falling behind and dropping out of the race. The first duty of the congregation is to encourage each of its members to keep on s s seeking God's grace by faithful participation in the divine in, in the divine service, right? Um, 
Neglecting God's grace opens the door to communal pollution and desecration, as it were. That if someone falls behind, <clears throat> if someone falls behind and says, you know, well, um, I get, I get, I get my church, I get my church on the TV, I get my church on YouTube. I don't really need to gather with everybody else. I don't need to gather. You know, that is the temptation now in this time of pandemic where we are taking precautions, but some people seem to be a little more cautious than others. And that cautiousness can extend into, into, um, into possibly the temptation to despise God's word and say, well, look how good I am without it. Why did I go in the first place? And in that sense, a root of bitterness can come in and other people will say, well, such and such doesn't have to come. Why do I have to come? Right? How quickly it spreads throughout the congregation. Um, so what he's saying is that neglecting God's grace, neglecting where God's word is preached, where his grace is given in the sacraments, is to be tempted to fall behind. Because without the strengthening of hearing God's word, without the consolation of the brethren, without the fellowship that we have in the church, we are a lot easier for the wolves to pick us off. Sheep that stray from the fold are easy pickings, right? <clears throat> so what he's getting at is um, watch out for each other. Now, he gets to the point of sexual immorality uh, or unholy like Esau. Um, and he's mentioning this because I, it's, it's not clear that this was a particular proclivity amongst the people there in that specific congregation, but they would understand the reference because they would know the story, right? That, that Esau is referenced as the example of how a, uh, a person who is sexually um, a person who's sexually immoral doesn't just damage the peace of the community but also hinders its sanctification by desecrating God's holiness. So, um, what does he say there? It's, well, that's interesting. So, I don't know if, you can, if we can make this connection. Dr. Klein, gets, he stretches it a little bit. He says this is euphemistic, in a way, that the fornication of, of, um, of, Oh, man, of Esau is like partaking in a forbidden meal. Now, if you know the story about what happened with Jacob and Esau, what happened? First off, um, Esau, what? Lost his birthright, right? Was it taken from him? No, he gave it away. He sold his birthright for a a bowl of stew, right? And what he's talking about here is that um, not only did that seal it for him, 
that he showed his disdain for God's blessing through his father in that way, but he also lost it um, because in the end he, what is it? He married Canaanite women that were leading him astray from the faith, right? He married, uh, he married two Canaanite women who, who were antagonistic, to, be, to put it charitably, antagonistic toward um, uh, Isaac and Rebecca. Right? I, I, I always get Rebecca and Rachel mixed up, but it's Rachel and Jacob, right? So the Canaanite women were not of the same faith. They held pagan gods. And in that way, by getting involved with them, he, um, he, um, he, man, Esau not only, um, Desecra uh, you know, damaged the peace of the community and his family and the people of God, but he hindered the sanctification by desecrating the God God's holiness that he had promised, right? So that is to say that um, with, with Esau, it's advice to the congregation in its common pursuit of 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 holiness. Um, and for some reason, it mentions fornication as the specific sin uh, being dealt with here. But he's, at, he's saying that the congregation needs to deal pastorally with each case of uh, sexual um, immorality. So those people will not be dealt with as Esau was in the end. Um, so, because with Esau, it says that he sought repentance with tears, right? But in the end, tears weren't enough. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't enough as if, as if his own pain of losing his birthright was what would bring it back. That's not the point. Because he thought that he could win his birthright back by his own work. That was his problem, is that he was such a strong and capable man, and he had everything kind of going his way, that he thought, surely by tears, when Isaac blessed Jacob, unknowingly, right, then... Jacob could not, sorry, then Isaac could not bless, uh, could not give the same blessing to, um, to Esau because that would mean that, you know, God is wishy-washy in a certain sense. That for some reason, it was allowed that Jacob should be the one to get the blessing. And so he trusted God and said, well, it's God's will that this has happened. I can't go against what God has willed. I can't give you the same blessing, right? And what Esau should have done was he should have said, he should have accepted that discipline. He should have accepted that chastisement and lived a faithful life. But instead, he went and married 
pagans, and they drew him away from the faith. He rebelled even further, right? So it's not that um, God is looking at him as he's crying and laughing in his face, saying, ha ha ha, you think, you thought that I would be gracious to you, but I, I, sh um, but I showed you, right? It's, that's not the case at all. It's that in being disciplined, um, Esau didn't heed that instruction. He rebelled even further. And this is a warning to us not to do that. And also not to uh, think that what has been given to us is a light thing, right? Um, that, what does it say? That in this birthright, in the same way we have a birthright, given to us in the birth of holy baptism. We have been given this birthright of life and salvation in the waters of baptism, being reborn by the Spirit, right? So with that, we shouldn't take it lightly like he did. We shouldn't sell out for something that is going to just leave us empty, like sin. We shouldn't um, take it so lightly because what has been given to us is precious, and it is the most worthwhile thing we can ever have, is the life and salvation that comes through Christ. And from, from those who are given much, much is expected. That's what's being said here, okay? Much is being expected in the line of, perse of, of perse perseverance and in the line of, um, uh, well, yeah, in perseverance and in not giving away that great gift for something that pales far, like, far and away by comparison, okay? Any questions on this before we move on to uh, the next section? I just have a comment. Sure. Which, which may be reaching out, but what I get out of this when I read through it is that Esau's failure was to repent. And if we fail to repent for sins and change our ways, we keep getting into a deeper and deeper morass. And pretty soon we get to the point where we feel like our sins are too great, God's not going to forgive us. Right. And, you know, we rely on ourselves too much. And we should continually go back and repent daily, hourly, because we continually sin. And yeah. if we don't repent, the guilt is going to consume us eventually, and we're not going to be able to repent like Esau was. He thought he could do it on his own, and he said, you yeah. yeah, you know, I keep, I keep going back to the same... I, I keep going back to the same picture that was shown to me um, by... Uh, me and my fellow classmates at the seminary from a pastor who's now out in Austin, Pastor Brian... Uh, pastor Brian... Wolfmuller, um, how our consciences, um, God calls for our, our consciences to be sharpened, you know, uh, that our consciences should be pricked whenever we sin or whenever somebody sins against us. We should feel it. It should be a heavy burden for us to bear so that we run to God seeking His grace. What happens 
you know, and he, he talked about this, about how, I don't know if he spoke to somebody in this vein or he heard about somebody in this vein. He did, it, 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 it was a prison ministry and there was a guy who was in there for, I think, um, molesting a minor, right? <clears throat> the argument was she was like 16 or 17, but you get the point. It's still awful. And he asked him, he said, how did you get to this point? Surely you didn't just wake up one day and think, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go do this horrible thing. <clears throat> and he said, no, I didn't, I didn't wake up and just do that. It was a slow march. And what happened over time was, you know, he was married, he had kids, but because he got more involved, like he, he was lured into things because of pornography. And that was a slow march because he got dulled to that to where he sought out more and more things that were explicit and, and very heinous, <clears throat> as if it's not bad enough. But it was worse and worse and worse to the point where it caused a, a wedge between him and his wife. They got a divorce. He was depressed because of that. And he got deeper and deeper and he became uh, much more sexually immoral, acting out these desires in a way that led him to that thing that got him in prison. And he said, it's like your conscience gets dulled over time because you're not consistently going back to God's word and God's law to see just how sinful you really are. Which is why when I first got here, I handed out those little pamphlets of like the confessional mirror. And what it was was going through the Ten Commandments, asking you all these questions, saying, you know, starting with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. Have I put something above my love and devotion toward God? And the answer is always yes, right? There's no way you can escape this to show just how sinful you are. That's not to beat you down and leave you there dead on the floor, but it is supposed to help you realize just how sinful you are and just how much forgiveness you need from God. Just how much grace you require to be saved. And just how much grace God is giving you freely from His Son. And the whole point of this is to continually go back to the law, to weigh ourselves against it, to see that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, and by God's grace, we have seen this. We have been shown just how sinful we are, and by God's grace, He grants us that forgiveness and salvation. And with that, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be sorrowful for our sin, repent of it, which is to turn from it and walk the other direction, away from it, and by the Spirit continue on in that direction toward God's grace, right? Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point that we were reading, I think, yesterday in the, um, some of the readings for Matins, that Paul talks about there are some people whose consciences are seared, right? And something that's been seared doesn't feel any more pain, you know? That your conscience can be dulled, it can be seared to the point where you need to engage in much more sinful things just to get your fix. 
That's how that guy got to where he was in prison, because he was on that slow march. Um, so, something to keep in mind, yeah, that we need that daily repentance that Luther says in the small catechism that we should rise daily and remember our baptism by doing things like making the sign of the cross and praying, remembering our baptism, therefore drowning the old Adam, right? The old sinful flesh must be drowned. But along with that, you have to remember, the old Adam, he's a really good swimmer. He doesn't, he doesn't drown easily. Uh, once he's down, he's not down for long. He's popping back up. But remember also that in Galatians where it talks about those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh and its desires, that when he, Luther puts forward that great picture where if we see our flesh as being crucified, the hands and feet of our flesh are fastened to the cross. And what are the typical modes that we carry out our sinful desires with our hands and with our feet? They're the ways that we get into things, right? But when we think of the, the flesh being crucified, we say, I can't. I can't do it. I can't engage in this sinful desire because <laughs> my hands are tied, right? My hands are nailed. My feet are nailed. And I can only do what the Spirit wills for me to do now which is to turn away from that sin, turn away from that desire, and be made holy by the Spirit. So. Very good analogy. Yeah. That's very, that's very good. <laughs> it's, it's, it's visual, and it helps to really think, you know? Uh, uh, yeah, there's all kinds of ways we can get into that, too. Um, that our flesh has been crucified, it can no longer carry out its will. And that way you can see, like, you know, my generation, I'm not on Twitter or anything like that, but they have those hashtags, you know, and uh, for some reason, I don't know, but you see sometimes this hashtag, sorry, not sorry. You know, so it's like whenever you have a desire to sin, like, sorry, can't sin, but not really sorry. It's a good thing, right? Uh, uh, sorry, not sorry. Um, so, uh, yeah, your, your, your flesh is crucified, and that's one thing that Luther was really good at. He was really able to bring forward these great pictures from uh, Scripture that while the body is alive and active and breathing, it cannot carry out its sinful desires because it's fastened to the cross. I just can't get over it. It's such a great image. I love it. Um, let's move on to uh, the next section, and we're going to break this into two different parts. I'll read all the way through. Um, I'll read all the way through verses 18 through 29, but we're probably going to break it up into two parts because there's kind of a lot to get through. Um, and I'm just saying that for my own uh, sake because, you know, I get carried away on something and I don't get to the rest of it at the end. Um, so we'll have like a part one and part two, uh, and we'll get through all of it next week. But um, so for this, uh, let's let's read uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, which goes like this. For you have not come to what may 
be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are sh sh shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may, may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Okay? A lot there. Um, on the outset, at the very beginning there, what is he referencing? The verse, verse 18, um, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. What is he talking about? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. What was so scary about Mount Sinai? God was up there. Yeah, God was up there. Yeah. What's so terrifying about God? What's so bad about God? Why, what, are you, what are you afraid of? He's a vengeful God. Oh. Yeah, he's, he's a just God, right? He's holy. What does that mean to be holy? Um, in the way that God is holy. What does that mean? Perfect. Yeah, so... so this is a theme throughout Exodus, right? Um, that in seeing where God the Most High was dwelling, was it a sight that brought awe and everyone said, oh, how beautiful and majestic and wonderful and glorious. No. What did they say? Ah! 
Like, oh, go away, Lord. We are sinful. We can't deal with it. We are fearful that you're going to strike us dead. Right? It was, it was, it was terror. Why? Because God is mean and scary? Because we're sinful. Right? The people were shown how sinful they were because God is so good. Right? And they just knew. They were shown by God's glory, by His holiness, that He is terrifying to sinners. There's no way that a sinner by themselves, in and of themselves, by their own works, can stand before God and live. He will not permit it. It's not acceptable to him. And people will say, you know, well, God is a loving God, and he accepts you just the way you are. No, he does not. He accepts you the way you are in Christ, right? I mean, that's the whole point, is that even the person that we would say, oh, they're such a saint, oh, they're just so nice, oh, they're the nicest, kindest, sweetest person, they've never said a bad thing about anybody, but I guarantee you they probably thought bad things, I guarantee you there was not always a good bone in their body, and they sin as well, and they need forgiveness, right? Everybody does. Everybody is sinful and have fallen short of the glory of God. No one can escape his wrath for sin by themselves. By themselves, okay? We have to add that caveat. Because, you know, that's how we should see this. That either we stand alone before God and therefore are judged rightly and harshly, or we stand before God with Christ before us to where God the Father does not judge us based on our works, but on the works of Christ, right? Um, so he says this, and he's bringing this picture from Exodus, right? For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now think about that. Moses, the man who was shown the glory of God, was terrified. Right? Um, but he wasn't shown the full glory of God because he was still a sinner. And he would have died. That's why God, you know, Moses said, show me your face, Lord. And the Lord said, I cannot show you my face or else you will die. But, but go into the cleft of this rock and I will pass by. And, like, and, 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 and he saw the Lord, the, the back part of the Lord as he was going by. Right? He could not see his face. What's interesting about this is that there's this contrast here, right? And there's kind of a paradox going on here that um, this is a theophany. Uh, does anybody know what a theophany is? So, you know, like, let's see if I can get into some, uh, what is it, epistemology here, where you, um, so we know what theo means, right? 
we get into theology. That's the knowledge of God. Um, theophany, the last part, the fanny part, you can attach to epiphany, right? Something being shown to you. So a theophany is God showing himself to us, right? He is revealing himself in some way to the people here. Um, and this foundational theophany gave his people, gave, gave the nation of Israel access to seven things. Um, the first was something that may be touched, right? Which was the mountain. It was the place where God was dwelling. It's something that may be touched, like you could touch it at your own peril. It was something that was there in front of them. They could see with their eyes where God was dwelling. Um, but there was also a blazing fire, right? There's a blazing fire, darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, right? There's all these things that accompany this revelation of God to his people. Um, and what may be touched is interesting because it's a place where God is dwelling. God the Most High is there. You can see it. It's there that you might touch it. You shouldn't, right? Because you are not holy as God is. But there's a blazing fire. There's darkness and gloom, a tempest, a sound of a trumpet. The sound of the trumpet was usually like the shofar that was blown when a king is coming, right? It's all these things to show you that the one true God is there. That the blazing fire, when, when did the blazing fire show up in Exodus with Sinai and when they were wandering in the wilderness? When was the blazing fire there? The light? Yeah. It was at night. The pillar of fire at night so that they could be guided by God in the darkness. But then at day, what, instead of the pillar of fire, what was it? The pillar of cloud and smoke. That's kind of interesting, right? That God reveals himself depending on certain situations and those specific situations like that. That um, Dr. Kleinig makes this point here, and it's a point that he made in his book, uh, Grace Upon Grace. That in Exodus, Moses, the prophet that is probably the most revered, right? I mean, he was there in the, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration with, with Elijah, right? He is, he is one, he's probably the most revered prophet because God revealed himself the most to Moses. But Moses, when he was called to the mountain, right? How did he engage with God? He went into the smoke, and in a paradoxical sense, the closer he got to God and the closer he knew that he was getting towards God in the pillar of smoke, the darker it got. Why is that important, do you think? Have you all thought about that before? It's kind of interesting to think about. Why would it be darker the closer you get to God in that pillar of smoke and cloud? You know your inner self. Well, you know your inner self. 
Yeah, because you're showing you you are it's getting darker and darker because God must be hidden from you in a certain sense, um, and you you can only hear his voice. Because when Moses was in the midst of God, it was dark, so that Moses couldn't see God and therefore die, but he heard everything that God was saying to him, right? So he couldn't trust his eyes, he couldn't trust his sight, he had to trust the word of God. Think about that, you know? That also, when it comes to life, the closer we get to God, as Christians, the more we're promised that we're going to suffer, the more darkness that we're going to be in because we are so close to God. That is counterintuitive to a lot of what American Christianity talks about, right? We talked about it last week, uh, the um, two different types of uh, theology, generally, uh, theology of glory and the theology of the cross. That the theology of glory is something like what Joel Osteen Joyce Meyer, uh, Hagee, um, Baker, what, whichever televangelist you want to pick on any given day, uh, Kenneth Copeland, whoever, they say, God is a gracious and loving God, and he is glor he's glorious. Therefore, the closer that you get to God, the better your life will be. Right? The better your life will be because you are so faithful and God loves you so much that everything's going your way. You'll have health and wealth and happiness. And I said last week, and it's worth remembering, apply that theology to the apostles. They did not have great lives. They died martyrs' deaths. Apply that to St. Paul, who was imprisoned for what he believed and followed his appeals to Caesar, probably almost all the way to Caesar, if not right in front of Caesar, appealing for his faith. And what did that get him? A date with the chopping block, right? He was beheaded. St. Peter was crucified upside down, according to tradition. These men were the closest to Jesus that you could possibly imagine, and yet they, they died horrible deaths. They were surrounded by darkness, and yet they died joyful. They were filled with the joy and the peace that only comes from Christ. And if you really want to test that theology of glory that says, if you're close to God, if you have strong faith, you'll have health, wealth, and happiness, test that against Jesus himself. How did he die? alone, crucified, naked, forsaken by God his Father. And yet we would expect a better end than Jesus? Something to think about. That as Christians, you know, it is, it is a blessing as a Christian to be able to die peacefully of old age in your bed, right? That is, that is a blessing in and of itself, right? It's also a blessing, though, to die a martyr in some sense as well. Either way, a Christian, though they may have a wonderful life, filled with family, they may be wealthy, 
prosperous in a lot of ways, but a Christian is also afflicted by their own sin. They have to repent. They must be forgiven. They must live within God's grace, knowing that they are a poor, miserable sinner who is only alive by the grace of God, right? So that is, that is to say that even though your life outwardly may be wonderful and, and you're happy, there will be times where you're going to be afflicted. There will be times where you feel guilt for your sin. And that guilt for your sin is meant for you to be drawn closer to God. Right? The Spirit is calling you closer to Christ to say that is where joy may be found. And joy is a lot different than happiness. Let's make that very clear. That um, happiness in and of itself does not necessarily mean you have joy. You can be very afflicted and beaten down, right? And still be joyful. May not be happy, <laughs> but you can be joyful. Um, so think about that, those, those distinctions, that the closer we get to God, the darker it's probably going to get. Especially in this world. The more we proclaim the love of Christ, the harder the world pushes against us. Because the world hates God. I didn't say it, God did. Right? Uh, the world would draw us away from the promises of God and toward its lies. Uh, that, that the world and Satan can fulfill your every desire. But it's empty. It's a lie. In the end, you can't fill, like they say, the God-sized hole with something that isn't God, right? So we don't come to this mountain where it's fear and holiness that is terrifying. We do not come to the mountain of Sinai where the law is given and we are beaten down because we're sinners. What mountain do we come to now? What does it say? Mount Zion. Now, where is Mount Zion? I mean, this is, this is not talking about the actual Temple Mount. This is a vision of what the heavenly Jerusalem is, right? That we'll, we'll end on this point and we'll move on and elaborate further next time about what it is to be to have come to Mount Zion and to this city of the, of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and so on and so forth. What he's talking about, what do y'all think he's talking about? What is, where do we in Fredericksburg, Texas, where do we have access to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem? Church. Right here in church. We have access to the heavenly Jerusalem, the place where God the Most High is dwelling, not in judgment, but in grace, right? in forgiveness. He calls all people to his holy mountain. 
Um, many times in the Old Testament, there are prophetic visions of all nations flowing to Mount Zion to worship the one true God, right? On Mount Sinai, the law was given to show us that we are less than perfect, to put it nicely, right? We are less than what God desires for us and what God calls us to. We are not holy. We're sinful. And we see that from the law that was given on that mountain on Mount Sinai. But now, having gone through the journey of faith through the wilderness of sin, as it were, we have come to the holy mountain, the holy Mount Zion, where God dwells in grace and mercy and peace, calling us to feast with him against all odds. Why? Because we're such good people? No, because Christ, our high priest, has offered the sacrifice that makes us worthy and holy and acceptable in God's eyes for us to gather and to feast at his table. Right? It's a pure gift. It's a pure gift, and it's so beautiful. Because if we speak of it as anything other than a gift, we degrade what it truly is to be a child of God to be called to worship and give him thanks and praise. Because if we're just giving him thanks and praise for, I mean, we should give him thanks and praise for the external things. Thank you, Lord, for the food on my table. Thank you, Lord, for the clothes on my back, the roof over my head. But Lord, thank you most of all for sending your son to die for me so that regardless of what clothes I wear, what house I'm in, what car I drive, I know I am forgiven and that I am a child of God, and that nothing this world can throw at me and make me, and try to make me feel bad for, will keep me from your love. Thank you. That is the greatest gift of all. And for that reason, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of what the world's going to do to me. I have no anxiety, as we talked on Sunday. I have no anxiety for these things because Christ has taken care of it. He's crucified it. He's crucified all the sin and the death and the despair and leaves me with nothing but joy. He takes it upon himself and he gives me his grace. What a tremendous blessing that is. Right? Amen? Amen. All right. We'll stop there. Um, there's more. You know, there's, that's, 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 the, that's the great thing about God. There's always more to his grace. And we'll get into that next time. Um, but we'll, we'll stop there. We'll close out. Not doing too bad. We, we went for about an hour, a little over, but it's okay. Um, let's uh, close things off as we normally do with really the greatest prayer we could ever pray, right? Because it was given to us by our Lord himself, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.